Let's open our Bibles, please, to the 27th chapter of the book of Exodus. We lack teaching about one little uh, point in the 27th chapter concerning the oil for the lamp. And we'll just read that. We'll have more to say about the various oils, the oil for the lamp and the anointing oil, uh, in a uh, chapter later on. It's uh, on over, I think, in the 30... Uh, 30th chapter, we have the holy anointing oil and that oil uh, described more minutely. And so right now we'll just uh, mention it, and then we'll go into the 28th chapter. Now we're studying the tabernacle. We've taught uh, some of the things you have before we read that verse of Scripture, the 20th verse would be our next verse. But before we read it, if you'll notice a little uh, chart of the drawing of the tabernacle that you have there, picture of it. Uh, we've studied the uh, brazen altar and the, and then within the tabernacle proper there, the golden candlestick and the table of showbread and the uh, Ark of the Covenant back in the Holy of Holies and uh, the coverings that cover over this tabernacle, uh, which are not mentioned by name on the picture, but we studied the four coverings and uh, somewhat of this white linen fence, the court that goes around, and the gate. In the front here, where is the only entrance into the presence of God, we haven't studied yet this little uh, round part that is called the laver, and really it's a brazen laver that you see right kind of in the center of the picture. And we haven't studied, uh, if you look within the tabernacle, there's a little uh, altar that looks about like this pulpit, and it's called the altar of incense just before you get to that uh, um, veil in the midst there. Well, you see the altar of incense. So those two pieces of the furniture of the tabernacle we have not yet studied. And we'll probably, we might touch upon them uh, tonight if we get that far. Uh, they're in the uh, lesson uh, context here, but we'll just see how far we get. But right now, let's look in the 27th chapter and uh, verse 20. It says, And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. Now this oil for the lamp was to always be burning. And they had to trim the lamp and they had to do various things uh, and replenish the oil and, uh, and service it inside the tabernacle, but it was to be kept burning always. In uh, verse 21, "...in the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. And we'll talk more about the oil later on. But right now, let's look at the 28th chapter. Now, there's two outstanding things uh, in this uh, chapter that I'd like to point out, and that is the uh, uh, garments of the, the priestly garments and then some of the detailed meanings of them. Uh, as we find in the chapter. But let's begin reading with verse 1. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they <clears throat> may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now, in verse 4, you have the, the various pieces of the garments. 
that are to be made. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, and a robe, a broidered coat, a mitre, and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And they shall take gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. Remember, we gave you the significance of all these various materials early. Gold is symbolical of deity. Blue is symbolical of the heavens, isn't it? Heavenly. Purple of royalty and scarlet of, uh, of uh, sacrifice and fine linen of righteousness. And it says in verse 6, And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and of purple, of scarlet and fine twine linen, with cunning work. Now then, the actually this this uh, ephod was made out of made out of fine twine linen with all this embroidery work, and the gold was really little pieces of wire. It was just strands of wire that was woven into the into the ephod, so that at one way you would look upon that ephod and you'd see gold shining because it was streaks of gold. Another way, you'd see white linen. Uh, I have a, a little plaque or a little uh, sign of Jesus that you can't read unless you look at the certain part of the sign, and most of you have seen that. Look at it one way, and it looks like Chinese writing. Look at it another way, and Jesus is just as plain as it can be. And that's the way this garment was. You look at it one way, and you saw white linen. You look at it in another way, and you saw gold. And uh, it was that way to the vision and the gold never became uh, linen and the linen never became gold so the person of Christ it is symbolical of, of the twofold aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll see uh, that uh, even though he's the same person uh, that their two natures of Christ were interwoven so that they could not be separated you know you have a lot of folks uh, in some cults and religions today that try to separate Christ and make him man at one time and God at another time. He was the God-man. He was one person. He was never divided. And when he be when the Word became flesh, it was God manifest in the flesh. That's who he was. And he was perfectly man and perfectly God. And you didn't divide him up and cut him up into pieces and try to separate the person and the nature of Christ. He was completely man and all man the sinless man. But he was God manifest in that flesh. Uh, anyway, we'll get down to verse 7. It shall have two shoulder pieces. Now look at this. Thereof joined at the, at the two edges thereof, and so shall it be joined to, so it shall be joined together. And the curious girdle of the ephod which is upon it shall be of the same. Uh, according to the work thereof, even of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen, the same materials woven together to make the uh, ephod itself. Now then, in verse 9, And thou shalt take two onyx stones, and grave on them the names of the children of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the other six names of the rest on the other stone according to their birth. I'm going to read on down for the sake of expounding this in a better way. I'm going to read on down to verse 30. If you'll just follow me on down to verse 30. And then we'll come back to verse 9 and start talking about it again. 
verse 10 said, Six of their names on the one stone, and the other six names on the, uh, of the rest on the other stone, according to their birth. That's very important. You might underline according to their birth. Uh, with the work of the engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shalt thou engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel, the twelve names. Thou shalt make them to be set in uh, ouches of gold, and thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulder shoulders of the ephod. This is the priestly garment. And these two stones were to rest upon their shoulders. For stones of memorial unto the children of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. And thou shalt make ouches of gold, and two chains of pure gold at the ends of wreathen work shalt thou make them, and fasten the wreathen chains to the ouches, and thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment. It was a, a four-square bag that was to go on the breastplate of this particular garment. By the way, it was all joined together so that the the breastplate, the shoulder pieces and the breastplate and the curious girdle were so bound together that it fashioned and formed one garment, actually, because it was all joined together. And thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod. Uh, thou shalt make it of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet, and of fine twine linen. Uh, shalt thou make it. Four square it shall be, being doubled. See, that would be a, a four square bag. It was doubled front and back. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. And thou shalt set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row, and the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold in their enclosings. And the stones shall be uh, with the names of the children of Israel, twelve, according to their names, like the engraving of the signet, every one uh, with his name, and they shall be, now look, according to the twelve tribes. Now remember when we said this, the names were upon the, on the, shoulder, the stones on the shoulder, it was according to what? Their birth. And this is according to their twelve tribes. It's very important. And when we get through reading, we'll explain some of this. And thou shalt make upon the breastplate chains, chains at the ends of the wreathen work of pure gold, and thou shalt make upon the breastplate two rings of gold, and thou shalt put two rings on the two ends of the breastplate, and thou shalt put the two wreathen chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate, and the other two ends of the two wreathen chains thou shalt fasten, uh, in the uh, two ouches and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod before it. You see it's all bound together making one garment. And thou shalt make two rings of gold and thou shalt put them upon the two ends of the breastplate in the border thereof which is the side of the ephod inward. And two other rings of the gold thou shalt make and thou shalt put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath toward the forepart thereof over against the other coupling thereof above the curious girdle of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastplate by the rings thereof unto the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue that it may be above the curious girdle of the ephod that it, uh, and that the breastplate be not loose from the ephod. <clears throat> now look. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment 
upon his heart. Now remember, it says we need to look at verse 12. Thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod. Look at verse 12. For stones of memorial unto the children of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for memorial. And here it says in verse 29, Upon his heart, which uh, when he goeth into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Now we'll stop reading there. You have uh, all of this, the breastplate, shoulder pieces, the curious girdle, the ephod, all joined together so as to make a sleeveless tunic uh, coming uh, below the waist and forming one garment. And it was made according to the construction that we have just named. Now, if you look at verse uh, 10, it says, Six of their names on the one stone, these two onyx stones, verse 9, six of their names on uh, one stone, and the other six names of the rest, this is talking about the names of the children of Israel, on the other stone according to their birth. So that all of Israel was registered there, and their names were there according to their birth of the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve tribes, in these two stones, resting upon the shoulders of the priest, symbolical of all the family of God, of all the nation of Israel, because it included all the twelve tribes representatively. And symbolically, it speaks of all believers, every believer, every repentant sinner, everyone that is a believer in Jesus Christ and belongs to the Lord, is registered his name according to his birth. In other words, by spiritual birth, because we're all born again and have a spiritual birth, we're all carried upon Christ's shoulders. That's where our, our position is. Now, I want to try to show you something that I believe is pretty rich in just a moment. So, all by spiritual birth, Jesus, he went out in Luke 15, 99 sheep in the fold, and he went out and sought that one sheep which was lost, and he laid it upon his shoulder. And so, we all were lost sheep, weren't we? So, in a sense, each and every one of us was that one lost sheep that he sought and laid upon his shoulder, and we rest in his strength. And right now, not only did he bring him back to the, this one back to the fold, and there was rejoicing because of his recovery, but... He had such a grasp upon him that he was there forever. And Jesus will make sure that everyone that he seized and brought back from that lost condition will be in that home in heaven. And there will be rejoicing not only now in the presence of the angels of God, but in the future. I believe in the security of the believer. I believe if you're saved, he's going to take you home. He's going to, he, he says he, he, he took that lost sheep home. He sought it till he found it. And then when he found it, he laid it upon his shoulders. Can you imagine that sheep on the edge of a cliff and in danger of falling off or wherever he was in the wild and all the dangers he was exposed to and uh, wanting to wiggle away and get her out of the grasp of the shepherd? Jesus says, no, I'm not letting you go. He had such a grasp on him, he's bringing him home. And you and I may squirm around and wiggle around and may go here and yon and be in much danger in this life, but He's going to bring us home safely. And then again, let me show you something else. In comparison or contrast to that, if you notice, 
verse 21 says, And the stone shall be, now there's twelve stones, and there's four rows, uh, with three in each row, and we read it from verse 17 on down, but look at verse 21. It says, The stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engraving of a signet. Everyone uh, with his name shall be according to the twelve tribes. Now then, these four rows of three each were upon the breastplate and born upon this breastplate. And these were individual settings. Right? There were only two stones here that had, had all the twelve names. Right? Six on each shoulder. But there was each individual stone here had the engraving of each and every individual one of the tribes of Israel in their place. And there was a special stone for a special tribe. Notice they were all different. It says the first, in verse 17, shall be a sardis, a topaz, a carbuncle. Everyone was different. And in this fashion, look at verse 29. And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart. In this fashion, every name was born upon his heart. Now, Aaron, of course, is typical of Christ, our, our high priest, right? Our priest. Our great high priest, the Son of God. So if Jesus is seen in symbolical language here bearing us upon his shoulders because of their birth, and that's very important, but he sees us individually, and we're seen individually as born upon his heart and having a special place upon Christ's heart in love. This represents upon his heart as a symbol of love. And when you think about that a moment, you know, we're all alike upon his shoulders because of birth. Uh, but we're all, and we're all upon his heart. Don't make any mistake. Every one of God's children, all believers, are upon his heart. But all do not have the same place upon his heart. It's very important. All believers are upon his heart. But all do not bear the same place. You remember Jesus started out with a 70? Then he narrowed it down to 12. And of that 12 that were apostles, you remember when he would go in to do some special deed, he taketh with him Peter, James, and John upon a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun. We call them the inner circle, don't we? We call them the very a special three out of these 12. So you can see that various, even of the apostles, say 12 here. Okay, even of the apostles, of course, symbolical too of other believers, because all of the family of God is included upon Christ's heart. But what I'm saying is, even of them, there were certain ones that had a special place of nearness to Christ. When he went in and raised Jairus' daughter, he taketh with him Peter, James, and John. When he was in the garden, he taketh with him Peter, James, and John. They went a little further, right? Deeper into the garden. Jesus went further than they did. But they were. he left the nine of the twelve, and Peter, James, and John went on a little further, and then Jesus left them, and he had to go further yet. The Bible says he went a little further. He always goes past and beyond what man can go. He goes a little further. And so we find that we're all upon his heart but not all alike upon his heart. 
And if you'll remember, even of those three, let me give you something. Turn to the Gospel of John chapter 13. If you remember when Jesus spoke of one betraying Him, John 13, uh, verse... uh, Let's read uh, 21. When Jesus had thus said, He was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. You have John 13, verse 21. That one of you shall betray me. Now look. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Here you have the disciples, the twelve, right? And then it says in verse 23, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now it didn't mean he didn't love all of them, but one who who especially is spoken of as the beloved disciple. We know it to be John, though. Okay. You know why John doesn't say it was me? Because it's the gospel of John. If you'll notice, by the way, before we finish this thought, if you'll notice in the gospel writers, they all showed respect for one another. When Matthew speaks of himself, he says, Matthew the publican. You know. When the others speak of, and a tax collector, when the others speak of them, they don't use that kind of language. Matthew, the son of so-and-so, Alphaeus, or whoever it was, or whichever it was. I may have gotten that wrong. But he speaks of them with respect. When John speaks of himself, he doesn't say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved more than anyone else. Wouldn't that have been humility? That would have been humility, sure, wouldn't it? I'm that, great, I'm that great disciple that Jesus loved more than any of them. By the way, you find a lot of Christians that way today. They're, they're a little bit uh, uh, preoccupied with their special position in the grace of God. When you talk about being a Christian and how God is dealing with you, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. As if they have the whole possession on themselves, you know. He's mine and nobody else is you. It says, our Lord and our God. And my Lord and my God. He is personal, all right. But when Jesus said pray, He says, pray our Father which art in heaven. Didn't He? He didn't say my Father, even though He is our Father. But you see, you can get, you can let this personal position between you and the Lord get out of control and just act like you're the only one that's ever known anything about the grace of God. And there's a lot of churches that way. Brother, there's a lot of them that they're the only ones that have the Holy Spirit. You know, after all, you folks just don't have it. Well, I I, uh, beg to pardon with that, but on the other hand, you find some people that just think, you know, it's impossible for a Baptist to be filled with the Holy Ghost. But I know a a few of them that are. And I believe the Holy Spirit will testify on His own behalf without me having to say anything. But anyway... Uh, you find that there's that, that uh, kind of jealousy and uh, uh, ambition in grace that doesn't, is not becoming to a Christian. Paul, you know, when Paul looked at himself, this may be not the lesson, but this may be good for us. Paul, when he looked at himself, he says, I who am least, who am least of the apostles. Well, that's not bad, Paul. That's one out of twelve. You know, he was a, an apostle born out of due time. But look, that's not bad, Paul least of the apostles. And the next time he says, uh, I the apostle Paul, I, I who am less, now he doesn't even mention apostle, he says, who am less, listen, than the least of all saints. 
Unto me who am less than the least of all saints was this grace given. Do you find in the ministry today that kind of a of an attitude about a person's self? No. Everyone's great, you know. Remember the disciples came to Jesus. Who's going to be greater than I want to be the greatest, you know? Jesus said, He that is greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. He kind of put a kaitis to that, didn't he? Okay? And then on the other hand, you find later when Paul evaluates himself, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Oh, someone comes along and says, Preacher, uh, Paul meant that he was the chiefest of sinners. Well, you know, I think he knew the language. But he said, Who am uh, who am chief of sinners whom I am chief. I am. He didn't say I was. Now he was, but he was. He still was. And the more a person thinks of the Lord, the less he'll think of himself. And certainly when we look at ourselves, if we really evaluate ourselves proper, properly, we would say we're chiefest of sinners. He's not the only one that ever felt that way. He's not the only one that ever felt that way. We sing that song, Amazing Grace. And Brother, if that doesn't put you in your place, right? And so we find that... Uh, and back to our lesson now. That was, that was just a sidetrack. Back to our lesson. In John chapter uh, 13, look at verse 22. <clears throat> it says, Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore... Now look here. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him. Simon was upon the Lord's heart. Right? But Simon beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He said, John, who is he talking about? He knew that John occupied a very, very special place upon the Lord's heart. Right? And even more special than Peter. And he says, John, who is who's he talking about? He then, this is John, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is he? He whispered, Lord, who is he? He could find out the secrets of the Lord. The Bible says the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Okay? So back in our text now, in the in the book of Exodus, I think you've seen then that there is a difference. We're all alike. Exodus chapter 27 I mean, 28, I beg your pardon. Exodus chapter 28. We're all alike upon his shoulders, and we're all upon his heart. That's the lesson. But we're not all alike upon his heart. Because some are more consecrated and dedicated and closer to God than others. Now, if you want to have a special place upon his heart, desire what Paul did. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul wanted to be where John was. Paul says, I'd like to be where that beloved apostle John was. And if we want to have that attitude about being close to Jesus, we will dedicate ourselves to wanting to be that close. We'll say, Lord, let me be close to you. And a whole lot of it is our own attitude and our own love that puts us in the proper place in these twelve stones upon the breastplate. And each and every one had a special place. But if you had 12 in a row here, some would be very much closer. They would all be there, right? The 12 stones. But some would be very much closer to the very heartbeat of the Lord 
And we're not saying that the heart is the seat of affection, as a pump. We're not talking about the heart as, a, as an organ of the body. But we're saying that there is a special place of our inmost being that some are closer to than others, to give it to you in that direction. All right, let's go on now. It, in verse, uh, if you have Exodus 28, uh, verse uh, 30, it says, Thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before uh, the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. These two things are speaking of as light, spoken of as lights and perfections. And by consulting these, the priests uh, could uh, get word from the Lord and prove the things of the Lord. And it was as if... Uh, God spoke to him in and through these things. We don't know. There's a lot of mystery surrounding these two things, the Urim and Thummim. And there's been a lot of speculation about it. But we do know that by these, he consulted a deeper insight as to how to, to deal with the, the judgment of the children of Israel. Verse 31, And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod. Now, we're not going to read all of these things now. I'm just going to mention the verse and then tell you about the robe. Uh, Verse 31, Thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue. Now, a robe is, is a symbol of the position and office and character. It's symbolical of the position and office and character of the priest. And then let's drop on down to, uh, to uh, verse uh, 34. It says, A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, granite, upon the hem of the robe round about it. It shows you the various uh, things that were attached to the robe, and we won't get into every detail because we taught this. If you remember, we taught all of these details before. But I will take you on down to verse 36 and then verse 39. It says uh, in verse 35, It shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth into the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh out, that he die not. In other words, this was to make a noise as he went in. And uh, as he came out, and they would know that if the bells were ringing, Aaron was still alive. He hadn't died in the Holy of Holies when he goes in when he comes out. It is said, I don't know, but because of the fact that when you went into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of the, of the sacrifice of the brazen altar to sanctify the altar of incense, you see it in the picture right before the second veil, and also to sprinkle upon the mercy seat, uh, that if they went without blood, if they didn't go according to God's directions specifically, that one might die in there. And it's said that the Jews of old would tie a rope, a cord, to the foot of the priest so that if he did die, if there was no sound in there and everything uh, was silent, and if that were to happen, that they could pull him out without going in in there and endangering their own lives that the other priests could pull him out into the sanctuary. I don't know. That's tradition. But at any rate, it was a dangerous thing. It says that he die not because the, the directions were if you go in without blood, not without blood, and not without the proper instructions, and not without the right guidance, and not without following God's directions, then you were in danger. But anyway, it says here that he die not. So the bells were for a purpose. And I'm sure that when these bells began to ring as the priest came out, 
And the children of Israel knew that all their sins had been laid upon the, the head of a sin of a goat for a sin offering, and this priest came out accomplishing the service of God, there could be joy that sins were forgiven for another year. That's why there should be joy in the Christian when you know your sins are forgiven. And by the way, ours are forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all, and there should be happiness. You shouldn't go around worrying about your sins if they're under the blood of Jesus. And yet people, they say, well, I confess my sins and, and Jesus died, the, paid the penalty for my sins. And they go around as if they're burdened down with sin every day. You don't have to be burdened down with sin. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I've committed sin. Well, he says, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So where do we stand before God? Cleansed and justified and holy and pure and forgiven and redeemed. What do you have to be worried about? And yet we go around and carry them with us, don't we? Carry them with us all the time. We go in, sometimes people even go in and get on their knees and they pray, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I've sinned in such a fashion, whatever it is, and forgive me of this sin. And they get up and they go out feeble and worn and carrying the same burden that they went in with. You know why? You haven't trusted Him to forgive them. You haven't taken Him at His word. You say, well, I didn't feel like this forgiven. He didn't say if you feel like it, He's faithful and just to forgive it. Does he? he says if you confess it, He's faithful and just to forgive it, right? He didn't say that His forgiveness was based upon how you felt when you got up through praying. He demands that you confess it, and He says, I'm going to be faithful and forgive it. So it means if you go back with that on your heart and say, well, I don't know if my sin's forgiven or not, and you carry the same burden and same load that you carried in, it means you're not trusting His faithfulness to forgive it. That's simply what it means. You're not taking Him at His word that He'll do what He said He would do. And see, that's unbelief, isn't it? That's unbelief when you don't take God at His word. And by the way, if you'll notice that passage of Scripture I quoted in the book of 1 John, it didn't say He is merciful and gracious to forgive your sins, but He says He's faithful and just. He's justified in doing so because Jesus died for them and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And He's faithful to do it because He's given His Word upon the basis of the merits of Christ that He will do it. You see, you know, you study uh, theology... And there is such a thing as solid, uh, sound teachings of God. And when you st uh, start talking about God's Word and God's faithfulness, you, it means simply this, that you accept Him, you believe that He's going to keep His Word, regardless of how you feel, regardless of whether you understand it or not, regardless of all the pros and cons of the, of the worldly crowd, you take Him at His Word. Have you heard, ever heard people say, well, I'd hate to presume that my sins were all forgiven, that I'm saved and I'm cleansed and I'm on my way to heaven. There's no presumption on your part. It's belief. It's accepting Jesus at His Word because He says uh, you're redeemed by His blood. He says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, neither by the blood of goats and calves like this Old Testament, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9.12, Colossians 1.14, and uh, Ephesians 1.7, those three verses. So you take God as His Word. And you know, I don't suppose there's any group, any... Uh, more accused of 
of this thought of presumption than Baptists are. And a lot of people say, well, if I believe like you Baptists believe, I'd go out here and live like the devil. No, you wouldn't. you believe like this Baptist believes. Because the Bible says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And it says the grace that saves teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, that's inside, righteously outside, and godly upward. Inwardly and outwardly and upwardly, what more relationship do you have than inward and outward and upward? See? And the grace that saves you teaches you this. So don't ever take the false accusations that people come down with. I'm a Baptist by conviction. I'm a Bible-believing Baptist. I believe God's Word, and I stand on the fundamentals of the of the faith, and I believe that if you're saved, you're saved by grace. I believe you're kept by the power of God. I believe you have eternal life, and I believe you're just as sure for heaven as if you were already there. Because whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, them He also what? Glorified? Well, you say, well, preacher, I'm not yet glorified. Well, in the sight of God you are. You haven't reached it experimentally or as the time element is concerned, but God has seen you justified before you were justified, and He saw you that you were called before you were called, and see, He sees you glorified before that happens too. Talk about something to be happy about. When you start studying God's Word, you can get really happy, can't you? You can get happy. So back to this. Where were we? We were at the Golden Bells, and I wasn't even going to give you any details about that. Now then, Come down here to verse 30, uh, 36. It says, And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold and grave uh, upon it like the engravings of a signet. Now look, holiness to the Lord. Now this mitre, you know, that's the plate. The golden plate uh, indicates the holy one. Known down we get the mitre. This is a plate of gold, see? A golden plate. And it, this signifies... Uh, Christ as the Holy One. And then on down verse 39. We'll read on down to verse 39. 37 says, And thou shalt put it on the blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre. Upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon the Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, uh, that they may be accepted before the Lord, and thou shalt embroider. Well, let's see. Verse 39 says, And thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen, and thou shalt make the mitre of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. So you have in verse 39 both the uh, coat of linen and the mitre mentioned again. So the mitre that goes upon the head, the covering, the head covering of the priest, is symbolical of Christ as the obedient one. He's the obedient one. He's the holy one as far as the plate of pure gold. He's the obedient one. Then the linen code in verse 39 is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ. And He is the righteousness of the saints. Revelation 19 verse 8. Let me read this for you. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8. Notice this, this verse. It says this, and to her, this is the, the one that's called to the marriage uh, of the Lamb, uh, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, in verse 8, Revelation 19, verse 8, 
And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So Christ is our righteousness, the linen coat. The linen, all the way through, back to her place in Exodus, is typical and symbolical of righteousness. And just as Christ is perfectly righteous, how do we become righteous? He has substituted his righteousness to us. He's given us righteousness. And the Bible tells that all through the New Testament, that he made him, okay, 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you just want one verse, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might, what? Be made the righteousness of God in him. So that's the way God sees us. You know, we look at one another and we say, well, Brother Joyce has got all these faults, and Brother so-and-so has got these other faults. And we see sister so-and-so and different ones of the church, and we can point them out. And we look inward and we can see our own if we're not blinded. We can see we've got plenty of them. And then, on the other hand, what? But God doesn't see it that way. He looks upon us through the righteousness of Christ. He says, with all their faults and all their failures, they're righteous in Christ and they're accepted in the Beloved. That's our standing before God. I'm glad it's like that. If God looked upon us as far as our sins were concerned, we'd be in deep trouble, wouldn't we? All right, let's go on back to this now. In verse um, 39, you have a coat of linen. And thou shalt make the mitre of fine linen, and thou shalt make the girdle of needlework. And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets. Uh, shalt thou make for them for glory and for beauty. Notice it's glory and beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron uh, thy brother, and his sons with him, and shall anoint them. Now, we're going to get in pretty soon as we study this, the holy anointing oil that anointed these priests, symbolical of the Holy Spirit of God. That will be in our next lesson, I trust. Don't miss it Sunday night. And consecrate them and sanctify them, that they may minister to me, unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness, from the loins even to the thighs, they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come into the tabernacle of the congregation or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place. And they shall bear uh, not uh, that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and his seed after him. Now then in the 29th chapter we're going to find various offerings. We're going to find a, a sin offering down in verse 14. And we're going to find uh, the uh, all of uh, the uh, offering of the ram of consecration in verse 18, the whole burnt offering, and the description of that on down in the next few verses in in chapter 29 from verse 18 on down, and it'll speak of of the priests and how that they uh, put the uh, all the blood rather upon their ear and upon their uh, the right hand upon the thumb of their right hand upon the toe of their right foot that's in verse 20 and then on down in verse 21 we'll see how it's hallowed to the Lord in verse 22 the ram of consecration and uh, various other things in the 29th chapter 